Well, welcome back to Online Education Across the Atlantic. Uh, this is Phil Hill. I'm here with Neil Mosley and Glenda Morgan for another episode. Well, Morgan, uh, just to get started out, what a week you chose to travel over to Europe in terms of all the news that was happening in the edtech world. Hopefully it was worth it. Yeah, no, it was absolutely worth it. I mean, it was a crazy time in terms of trying to keep track of what was going on with OpenAI and, and those sorts of things, but it was really worth it. It was, uh, It's really good to get out of the bubble, I think, and sort of see things from a slightly different perspective. And, you know, my my typical three-part conference list, which is, have you, did you learn something? Did you meet somebody new? And did you have a good meal? All three boxes got checked. So, uh, so I'm a happy camper in that regard. Yeah. So were you guys, I mean, either one of you, I mean, obviously the open AI news, we're going to cover uh, some of the news. And then eventually what we're going to get around to is talking about online enrollment, you know, what data we're seeing and which trends are real. And so we're going to explore that. But first, there's so much that's going on. I wanted to just, uh, you know, have a discussion around everything that we're hearing. So it, what are you guys, I mean, were you overwhelmed with open AI news in the same way that uh, was happening in the US? I guess I'm, you know, looking at both of you, Neil, what were you hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's just a bit of a saga, wasn't it, really? Um, and I think it kind of obviously speaks to the company itself, but also it kind of speaks to a little bit of the the stage that we're at with AI. I mean, uh, I, I even now it's kind of hard to know what actually went on there, which I think is, yeah, it's kind of a bit worrying, isn't it, really, that lack of transparency? Yeah. Because the whole, then the rumor mills come around, you know, what is actually being developed there, which plays into the kind of existential aspect of AI nervousness and, and what it's going to mean. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't follow it really, really closely, but it was hard to kind of, um, it, it was hard to kind of avoid it. But I, I kind of am now left with this sense of, I kind of want to know what really went on there. And yeah. I don't think we're getting that. Well, they did talk about having an investigation, and I, I was saying this, I was talking to my daughters because I went up to visit them in Denver over Thanksgiving, and, I, and while this was all happening, I was saying, I can't wait to watch the Netflix documentary that I'm sure they're already producing. I mean, this will be fascinating to find out what the heck actually happened there. And then I'm actually, you know, it's funny, so we're recording this now. I don't know, are we stable yet? I mean, at this stage, for our listeners, we're back to where Sam Altman is back as CEO of OpenAI. We haven't heard any updates yet, but it was funny. I was thinking about writing some newsletter posts of here's what I think it means for EdTech, and I'm glad I didn't because, you know, one day later, the you know, the, he moved to Microsoft. He came back. You know, things were just changing so radically. I'm glad I didn't write about it. So I don't know if it's stable at this point. Well, it seems as well like it might have worked out quite well for him in terms of, you know, when you've got, what was it? Was it 270 odd or more than that employees basically saying we want this guy back? Otherwise, we're, we're heading. Oh, no, no. It was like 700 out of 770 employees yeah. that wrote, a, you know, signed the letter saying we're going to quit you know, if, if things don't change. So it's not a good uh, endorsement of the board, I'd say. No, and I'm surprised there's not, given the 
given how opaque some of this stuff is, I'm surprised there's not kind of stories out there. And maybe there are stories out there around, this is how he always intended it to play out. And now he's come back with, you know, greater support. You know, given the nature of this story, I'm surprised that there's not that kind of, those kind of things coming out too. Well, I am hearing like uh, more, like the paper by Helen Toner, one of the board members. Yes. Yeah. Which... That that was one of the triggering events. And I haven't read that paper. It seems a little bit overwrought to me from the summaries of it that I've seen. But, you know, I'm hearing that type of thing. But I think there's got to be a lot of background goings on that were happening. Yeah. But really, Larry Summers on the board now? <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, the best thing I heard about him, well, first of all, he's a big name, but uh, the most interesting is, you know, there's such a world of uh, regulation that's starting to come down on AI. And the best thing I heard is putting him on the board to be somebody who can deal with Washington. And, uh, you know, it it was a little bit of a head scratcher to me, but that's the best thing I had heard. I think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if there hadn't have been that involvement with Microsoft. I feel like that was a bit of an anchor for them. Um, and it would have been interesting to see how things might have unraveled if they were if there wasn't that relationship there. Um, but it feels like, you know, from what I've read, you know, they now have greater influence um over OpenAI. Um so that'll be interesting to see what, what that means in the future. Well, there had to be some panic there. Investing thirteen or committing to investing thirteen billion dollars with no influence or seat on the board, and don't even get told. So I'm not, I'm not a pro Microsoft like uh, as in I think they need to have more control of AI. However, it is stunning to hear that they had no, no, no input on the governance at all. Which I bet there were some panic days for them. You know, thinking of how do we tell investors, oh, we threw this money away. Yeah, that must have been a tense moment there. Yeah. So I guess part of the question, I mean, do you guys, how does this apply to EdTech? I mean, EdTech is certainly everybody's talking AI. Uh, well, they're talking AI in general. They're making product announcements. You know, all three of us have sort of talked about it in newsletters. And it seems like open AI and chat GP is the default or has been the default position for edtech vendors on how they're going to research and work with uh, with generative AI. How does does this matter to edtech? I guess is one of the things you know I'm trying to think about the whole drama around the you know firing the employees threatening to quit the reconstituting of the board. So does this matter? I, I hope it's a bit of a wake-up call in terms of getting more diverse in, in terms of how they're engaging with AI, because I think you can't sort of focus on on one one provider. So I would hope that would be the case right now. Yeah, and I think as well, I think maybe, does it, ma- does it matter? I mean, it's kind of an interesting question, like at, at what level, but I, I suppose, you know, it maybe adds a little bit more nervousness to people around this kind of thing. Cause there's, you know, there's something about the story, which, you know, it even, even makes you feel a, chimes with a kind of certain sense of instability around 
the companies that are leading the charge on AI. And, and given the relationship they have with Microsoft, given certainly in the UK, Microsoft is just kind of embedded within universities. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure that, you know, anything tangible will have resulted on the back of it, but it just kind of increases the level of unease or questioning around you know, AI and the companies behind it and how they're incorporated and used within the university context, I suppose. So I think it, it, it kind of affects the climate a bit more. Yeah. If I'm an ed tech executive, I mean, I would be not as scared as uh, Satya Nadell had to have been that weekend and as nervous, but I would be going to your point, Morgan. I don't see how this doesn't diversify the approaches to AI. Because if I'm an ed tech vendor, it was just the ones I've talked to was like the default. Oh, you're trying this uh, AI tool. What are you using? And it was almost just like the default. We're using open AI. Um, And they would say, well, we don't know if this will be the long term, but that's where they seemed like everybody went. Well, if I'm an executive right now, I would be very nervous in telling my teams today we need to broaden, we need to sh- spread the risk because we're that close to them, not shutting down AI research, but slowing it down significantly and huge chaos going on and, you know, 700 employees threatening to quit. So I, I don't see how this doesn't diversify the ed tech approach to AI. I think there's got, and given the nature of education, there have there has to be a lot of people saying this is why we have to look at open source the llama models through meta my guess is that's going to get a boost in ed tech usage be, all because of risk handling risk maybe i'm wrong but that's uh that's one way i do think this this matters yeah it's risk management isn't it it's that kind of it increases that sense of the level of risk of things and and, and I guess it opens up opportunities for those players that, you know, may have been in the shadow of OpenAI a little bit. Yeah. And I think a sort of a downside for EdTech, or as I think about it, it's not just AI. It was the fact that ChatGP, ChatGPT was sort of building a whole new way to interface to computing. A natural language, one simple place in a way that could even replace search and a lot of other things. And there are other AI tools, but nobody is to the place that OpenAI has been in terms of that simple, all-in-one user interface type thing. So I also suspect this will slow down the ed tech adoption of taking advantage of that simplified human interaction that's out there. I guess what the I guess one of the um, one of the byproducts of this. Was it? It was probably a good time for other ed tech companies to share, to share particular news that might be perceived kind of negatively. Yeah. Thinking of, <laughs> yeah. thinking of two you here and and yes. uh, yeah, I wonder if they uh, yeah if they if they were timing it to saying let's not make our news of uh, and just for our listeners uh, the CEO of two uh, you the co-founder and longtime CEO Chip Chip Palsik, uh left two you and was replaced by the chief financial officer. The chief financial officer was replaced by another finance guy. So it's now a finance 
driven company, but it was uh, a major change with uh, Chip actually leaving. So you're right. I think that came out the more the same day or within a day of the open AI news. So you're right. It definitely seemed to, I mean, I found it fascinating, but it did seem to bury the news somewhat. How surprised were you by it, Phil? Uh, I was surprised it took this long for it to happen. I didn't see how they couldn't have made a change. And I'm, I'm doing analysis as Morgan's been seeing in the back channels, trying to write about that. By the time the podcast is out, it might be after it, but uh, I was surprised it lasted this long because you're talking a financial crisis to the company. You're dealing with uh, bonds. You're dealing with stuff. Those are things that companies are pretty aggressive about. And the handwriting was already on the wall. But I, I was surprised and not surprised. I was surprised it took this long. But when it happened, it was still sort of a shock to the system. So I was surprised, but not surprised. Morgan, what about you? Yeah, I, I like you. I, I'm surprised it took this long, um, you know. And and I think you made the comment on social media that 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 uh, it 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 happened on on like the best week since 1985 or whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, whenever Steve Jobs got fired, um, and and so it wasn't much in the news. But I think it's important. But you know, to use to me is still what what is it that that Winston Churchill used to refer to things as is an enigma wrapped in a mystery wrapped in things you know to you is perplexing to me because they do good work and so it's sort of interesting that that they've sort of it, it come come upon hard times like this because you know and and it's interesting to sort of start to unpeel some of those decisions but uh but yeah and then of course wiley also the the announcement got made that that wiley was the their their university services division was sold to academic partnerships so it was a big week for for yeah for big news that that would have consumed us normally yeah all fitting into my master plan to justify saying that uh just what was my phrase uh ah i've already blanked on it we talked about it in the first episode where uh we were talking about maybe it was overwrought the uh criticism i had about the existential crisis that the opm oh right Yes. On, on life support. The, on life you... support. The OPM market on life support. And uh, Wiley and 2U are coming to my rescue, at least partially. I don't know if you view it the same way, but that's how I interpret it. It's all about me justifying myself to you two. You spoke it into existence, didn't you, Phil? I mean, <laughs> I, I, you, you could see this happening, maybe. I don't know, some premonition. But yeah, it was. I, I I thought similar to you guys. It was one of those ones that it didn't surprise me, but it felt like a big announcement. You know, someone who's been associated with the company from the very start, someone that you really, you know, you, you inevitably think of when you think of to you. But you know, given all of the travails that they've been going through, it's not really surprising. Um, but it'd be interesting to see the next chapter and and what that means. I think you. I was interested in what you said, Phil, around the kind of more of a financial focus, which kind of makes sense. But what would that mean for for two you and its future, and um, the level of uh, the level in which the board are kind of invested in that kind of that kind of business? I suppose. Well, first of all, I, uh, some of this was gut feel and dot connecting. Uh, I didn't quite speak it into existence. I did have a when I made the statement, it was there was just some things that were some trends 
and combinations where I was saying this is deeper than just the Pearson and the Wiley news and the regulations. I, I sense it being bigger. I still didn't know that this was going to happen, but I'll, I'll go on the record here because it's going to come out in a blog post. I'll be very surprised. Wait, I call it a blog post. That's very old school. It's coming out in a newsletter. I I don't think that to you can survive as is through 2024 next year they're going to have to have either they're going to have to sell off components like trilogy and the get smarter unwind those and try to make cash from it or they're going to have to go bankrupt and the bankrupt is going to be financially driven by how do you maximize the amount of the debt um, paying back the debt to the debtors. So uh, Morgan had a interesting reader uh, contact of hers who gave her some interesting insight that's triggered me to do a lot of analysis. But if you think about it, this is no longer a, a, a stock-driven company. The total stock is like $90, $100 million. They have over $900 million, so a factor of 10 greater on debt. It's the debt holders that are really on the line and control the future of the company. Their debt matures in early 2025. And I, from what I'm looking at, there's almost no way or very remote chance they can actually pay off the debt that's maturing in 2025, meaning they have to refinance or do something with the debt holders. I think they're jumping in saying, okay, we're in control and we're going to dictate some changes you guys are going through. So I'll lay out my case. I don't think they're going to exist as is uh, beyond, certainly beyond 2024. Something big is going to happen with them. And then if you look at it, you've got them, Wiley and Pearson, three of the biggest five um, OPM providers, you know, getting out of the business, completely changing. And the ones left standing on the large side are academic partnerships, Coursera, or the nonprofit conversions like Grand Canyon Education or Kaplan that serves Purdue Global. So I think this is, uh, this story continues with additional big news over the next few months is my opinion. Something interesting to me is how much of this, say, in the U.S. is regulation-driven and how much is just finances-driven. I mean, it seems like almost it's more finances-driven. You know, the regulation is there hanging like a dark cloud. Yeah. Well, one potential thing that I'm looking at is what kind of leeway do they have to deal with the financial crisis, with the balance sheet, the debt, and dealing with that? And the lower their stock price is, the less financial room they have to be able to do additional public offering of stock to be able to manage this. While the regulations certainly are impacting the stock. So I think they are interrelated. I, you know, my gut is it's at its core a financial crisis based on the balance sheet. But then the stock price and the regulations feed into, well, what can we do about it? And financial people, they're cold. And what I mean by that, they're, they go by the money, not by sentiment, not by future stories too much. So I think that what we're seeing is not new to them. It's just we're discovering 
how they how the financial people, particularly the debt investors, how they're viewing the situation. I think the interesting thing for me is in terms of their journey, and to maybe to Morgan's point a little bit is how much how much has the kind of overall climate and operating conditions, which we know that are difficult, affected you know this this fall from grace you might call it um, versus you know how much has it been their sort of strategic pivot and the decisions that they've made that's led them down this and it you know this this makes me think of you know when i worked in a business school and the potential for this to be a case study in, in the future and maybe there is something in this in terms of all of the opms that you mentioned phil that are kind of no longer in existence but uh i think that'll be an interesting thing to reflect back on you know, next year when we probably have a clearer picture on, you know, where to you are at and what's happened. And I feel Morgan and I were having this conversation on Slack this morning, at least indirectly, and we're talking about the pivot that you refer to. I mean, to you used to be all about no back row for elite programs. Well, then they they did the get smarter acquisition. Then the bigger one was the boot camp with trilogy. That's when they started putting on big debt, and then they bought edX, and they're becoming a platform company. But that fundamentally is different than no back row and elite program. So you're right; it wasn't just they were adding things on. They really are pivoting the company. And good question. I mean, I'm. You know, we're talking about the same things as how much of this was the pivot, the environment, and some of it, you know, we'll be able to learn some lessons from it. Right now, I just feel confident that it's a balance sheet driven financial problem. But I I think you're right. There's going to be some good coverage opportunities over the next year to try to say, what can we learn from this? I I, I think we have also have a new and updated um curse you you know the old one about may you live in interesting times i think the new curse is may you live through something that should be a a harvard business review case study (laughs) yes or a net yeah i use netflix documentary you're going a little bit more highbrow than that Uh, (laughs) a case study is will be fascinating to read well let's pick up one other piece of news and times higher education announced that they're going to be doing rankings on uh, online programs or institutions. It wasn't entirely clear. And I know initially, so I, I don't know the details of when that fully rolls out, but that, that will certainly be new. And I know you had somewhat of a skeptical take on that, Morgan, just to get started. Yeah, so there, and and Neil can chime in here, because I know he uh, he certainly tweeted about it or, or probably wrote about it too. But yeah, they're 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 going to be ranking. You know, they've got a whole lot of rankings that they do, and uh, now they're going to be ranking online programs, but excluding business schools, which that was sort of part of my beef with them. You know, so uh, especially outside of the U.S., business schools are like in the the forefront of online, and I think online is not as as far along in many parts of the world. As, as in the U.S., so excluding business schools means that you're going to have very U.S.-dominated ranks there. And also, how do they, how do they deal with, say, a Southern Methodist University, which has three or four, or, or an NYU, which has three, four, five, six uh, OPMs working? You know, how do you measure those kinds of things in terms of pres- presumably they're going to have to have inputs there? 
um, in terms of what people are spending. So to me, it it was very confusing. And they're rolling it out in April, which suddenly, which seemed like far away. And then I realized, oh my gosh, gosh, it's 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 December. So before we know it, it'll be April. I don't know. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, I, I've kind of been vaguely aware that they were going to announce something for a little while now. So it didn't come as a big surprise to me. And I guess it makes sense for them. You know, I think in their press release, you know, they're they're talking about responding to the grow, growth in online degrees. So it kind of makes sense to, to me in lots of different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, there's a big question mark over it. I mean, I think, I think human nat- nature dictates that if I can put it like this, I think I think sort of rankings are doomed to succeed because we, you know, <laughs> we, 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 you know, we all we all we all outsource decisions to a certain extent, and actually having something like a, a simple thing like a ranking kind of helps. And you know, it I think it's very much for a student audience, although it will be of interest to people like us and for universities. And you know, a student isn't necessarily going to engage deeply with the me- methodology of the rankings necessarily, but take on trust that this organization that they may have looked for for their undergraduate degrees is going to have a similar kind of validity around the rankings. So I think that's probably the the first thing to say, but, you know, just similar to you, Morgan, like a a lot of question marks for me, you know, I, I, I get, I get why they might have decided to exclude business schools and business degrees, but, you know, you're basically wiping out a really huge proportion of online degrees. Well, why why is that? Why why do you believe that? And I don't know if they explicitly stated why are they excluding business programs. I didn't. I haven't seen anything that justifies why they're doing it. Um, I mean, there are you know there are things like online MBA rankings out there. Poets and quants. Poets and quants. Yeah, uh, but poets and quants. Times higher ed owns now, don't they? So they've kind of gobbled up a bunch of companies. So I think I I can I, I suspect it's because of the pre existence of um, rankings around those programs. But it, you know, if this is a wholesale online degree ranking initiative, you know, you don't really want to exclude business. You don't really exclude exclude healthcare and medicine. You don't want to exclude the areas that you know are have a dominant focus for degrees. I don't think. But I think other question marks are around, you know, how are they going to gauge gauge this? You know, I think this space is a bit more complicated and I think it's going to require, um, you know, a bit, a bit of a kind of deeper knowledge and understanding of the different flavors of online education. You know, you can have universities where you've got online programs run in a traditional way and then you've got online programs through an OPM you've got different brands how does what does that mean in terms of resource you know what about you know deliberately um asynchronous modes of online learning in which you know maybe student engagement isn't meant to be um quite as regular and as rich as um it it, it might be in other formats so yeah I think they have a tough they have a tough task um, in terms of a, a kind of ranking system that people are going to really respect. But you know, I think it would be an interesting, interesting metric. As someone who's an online education advocate, you kind of almost feel like no news is bad news. Um, but I think they have a yeah, they have a big ask, particularly in the early days, around kind of making this work. 
I, I foresee a bunch of uh, newsletter posts in our future. <laughs> Full <laughs> employment. Although I, so I'm a little bit uh, neutral. I mean, it, I hope that they learn. In other words, I hope that they are understanding the same questions we're raising and therefore they get started and then they can adjust as they move on. So I'm uh, I'm more interested to see how Times Higher Ed learns over the first year or two to improve what they initially put out in April. Uh, the second thing is, I, I've, I had forgotten about the Poets and Quants acquisition. I... I'm quite confident that's why they excluded business schools, because if they added business schools, that would destroy a lot of the value of the poets and quants that they acquired. So I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, they've been really snapping up lots of different companies, haven't they, recently? That it's kind of hard to keep up yeah. at times. That's right. Yeah, Education is the juggernaut. Okay, uh, so let's. Uh, there's so much going on, and I didn't even mention uh, the King's speech. <laughs> uh, King Charles uh, calling out low value programs, but we need to move on to our main topic of today, or at least I think we do. So, what I wanted to cover is as we look at online uh, education, we're out of the pandemic, and all three of us have written recently about recent data on enrollment. So how many students are actually in online programs and what does that actually mean? So I had written a post looking at the 12 month unduplicated headcount data from uh, our U.S. Department of Education from iPads, which is a much better metric for online programs as opposed to the other approach for traditional schools of just doing a fall census enrollment, like a one day as of this date, how many students you have. Because online has a lot more part-time, students jumping in and out, and a 12-month unduplicated headcount is a much better metric. And in the U.S., one of the key findings uh, from the most recent data, which is a year out of date or a year and a half at this point, is saying that overall 33% of students took only online courses, and a further 37% took a mix of online and face-to-face courses. So in U.S. higher education, 70% of students are taking at least some online courses. It's obviously less than during the pandemic, but that's pretty significant. And then um, Morgan has done a deeper dive looking at enrollment growth in community colleges where essentially you're saying, hey, it's much bigger than I initially thought about that. And actually, could you just give a quick synopsis of your two posts about the uh, community college growth in online sure, enrollment? Sure, yeah. So, you know, I was struck when I read Phil's post about the you know, the, uh, the general rise in online enrollment, I was struck by the appearance there are a couple of two-year schools. And I perhaps shouldn't have been because I used to work in California, but Phil did a great sort of uh, time lapse of the growth in online, you know, shooting up in, you know, for these two-year schools, shooting up a bit during the pandemic, but then really some of them continuing to grow post-pandemic. And, and it certainly seems to be a growth area. Um, and 
California is a bit of an outlier. You know, there are a bunch of schools that have been doing, two-year schools that have been doing online for a while, like Northern Virginia Community College, uh, some of those, some of the institutions in, in Texas. But, but California in particular, uh, if you look at the top 100 two-year schools in terms of online enrollment, 50 of them are in California. So we see a, and, and you know, it's, it's due to a bunch of different initiatives that they had, like the online education initiative and, and some other sort of sorts of things there. But certainly, it's it's an area that we're seeing. So, and 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 I'm, I I want to explore that further in some in some posts in the future. I also wrote another thing about how maybe online is the new international. You know, in terms of a lot of schools use international students to shore up their enrollment numbers, and and I'm sort of seeing something uh, like that with some institutions starting to get to very high proportion of online or, you know, online is growing at a much sharper rate in, in, in a very dramatic fashion. The two that I pointed at were uh, Oregon State and Arizona State and uh, did a bit of a deep dive into Arizona State's um, enrollment numbers and, and state funding. And they really had to grow online in order to to make up for that. That was, you know, I can't prove that, but I, a correlation is certainly persuasive there. And then, you know, Neil has been writing a lot about online growth um, from the supply and demand side in, in terms of the UK as well. Yeah, I, I um, actually my my uh, analysis, I suppose, wasn't actually based on particularly recent data, but I was just conscious that I, I kind of spent a lot of time. And I think it's inevitable, really, in online education that you sometimes tend to spend a bit more time on the kind of graduate, postgraduate space. That seems to be where things happen a little bit more. But I was conscious that um, I hadn't really um, spoken much around online undergraduate education in the UK. Um, and we we have the Higher Education Statistics Agency, which tends to release stuff kind of towards the end of January. Um, so I can't claim to be jumping on the back of a recent announcement, but I think it's a useful benchmark for how things have developed. So, you know, I think the general picture here in the UK is, is steady growth in that area that area is certainly not um similar to what you're describing morgan in terms of uh growing international student body um around um you know maybe cross-subsidizing income but certainly that's what's happening in postgraduate education you know whether that's online or on campus in the uk there's a big drive and a big need for international students to pick up the shortfalls that universities are, are getting from, you know, undergraduates and other, other parts of their operation. Just a quick question there. I mean, one of the mm. things that's being floated now, or I, I don't know if it's been passed, but limiting the number of dependents that international students can bring with them to the UK, you know, that's going to, that there's no way in my mind that that's not going to cause a reduction in the number of international students, more pressure on institutions there. Do you think it's going to cause an uptick in terms of that online as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a good, there's potential for that to happen. I'm not sure how quickly we'll see we'll see that. I mean, I've certainly heard of uni- universities in the UK who um, have struggled around international numbers and meeting targets in the in the kind of academic year just just gone and. You know the dependence, the dependence kind of ruling is is going to have definitely going to have an impact. You know, unfortunately, in the UK, political climate, you know, immigration is is such a hot topic, 
And it's a shame that students in higher education get get lumped into that. And maybe they're an easy target if you're looking to kind of um, reduce numbers um, that don't look so good for you politically. And obviously we have an election coming up just as you guys have. Um, but yeah, I think I think it may it may tip the balance for those considering online education, but there are plenty that are considering online education for an international market just purely on the basis of financial considerations, irrespective of what's happening around the dependence um, side of things. And it's I found it interesting, both of your points of coverage, if you will, are looking at online education out of the sweet spot of graduate school and higher higher uh, tuition revenue programs. And it's not just that, it's the fact that online education is very well understood. It takes a greater degree of student discipline, time management, you know, to succeed in an online program. It's more difficult for uh, students who don't have their, you know, ha- don't have their life together, don't have clear career goals, might not have the right study environment. So the more that students don't have their whole discipline of taking an academic program together, the more difficult online is. That's those, the revenue and that I think are two of the main reasons the sweet spot has been in graduate schools in particular. Well, what you're talking about, Neil, is undergraduate in the UK. And then Morgan, you're saying not just undergraduate, but even two-year schools, community colleges, where you have big support problems, that's growing and it's significant. So it's it's really pointing to online education, you know, becoming more pervasive outside of its sweet spot. And I did notice there was a lot of interest in your two in your post that we're out. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. The other thing, and, and this is sort of somewhat in my usual fashion, coming a little bit from from left field, but uh, I want to glom on to something that you said right at the beginning in terms of you know this growing proportion of students who take both online and on campus. And I had an intriguing conversation with, um, I was doing an interview and it was with an institution that had ended a relationship with an OPM. And I, I sort of was trying to get at some of why they did that. And the reason that they gave me was intriguing. I don't think it's the whole story, but it was intriguing in that they said, you know, working with an OPM didn't didn't match how their students behaved anymore because they found students cycling in between online and on campus. And so that was in part what they were doing. And I think that, you know, that's another interesting angle as well to the to the story. You know, you've got more of these different kinds of institutions doing things and, and it causing a structural change, plus the way that students are just behaving is different. Yeah, just to call out, I think part of what they're describing is because OPM providers tend to rely on tuition revenue share, well, then you need to identify, well, which student's tuition counts towards my revenue. Well, if a student's taking on campus and online or if they're moving around, that becomes, there's, it clouds that whole ability to simply identify who should get what revenue on the OPM and the school side. And it, to me, it's fascinating because, when was it? So it was 15 years ago, I started, well, I'd worked with DeVry University as a consultant. And 15 years ago, they started a big ERP 
new student information system, new CRM, and the real strategic driving factor. DeVry, uh, for people who don't know, a for-profit university system. 15 years ago, they were much larger than they are today. But the whole motivation they had for spending this money in a four and a half year project was what you just described, Morgan. It was, it shouldn't be a DeVry online student, or it shouldn't be a DeVry campus student, or it shouldn't just be a DeVry Illinois campus versus a Wisconsin campus. It should be one student going to DeVry. And so the idea was, if they call up to get uh, an advisor and get support, that advisor needs to see the whole experience. And if they wanted to mix and match some online courses, some on-campus at multiple location, everything seamlessly comes together, all the support is provided. So the for-profits get a bad name in the U.S. media at the very least. But it's interesting to me that, yeah, I, I saw that 15 years ago, and that was a major uh, approach, particularly for the for-profits. Well, now uh, what we're seeing is a lot of the nonprofit institutions are getting that same religion that they're doing. And that's that's what I think you're hearing about. So I would just add, I'm not saying, hey, we know everything because of the for-profits, but there is sort of a, a following nature of this discussion. Yeah, and I think I think it's interesting to think about those kinds of that kind of variety in terms of reporting, because um, I, I I've been thinking about this recently in terms of the way that we think about um, classifying higher education experiences, the whole full time, part time, distance, or on campus. You know, it, it it feels to me as though those things are being increasingly challenged. There was a, a survey here in the UK that said. You know, I think it was close to 90% of undergraduate students who were studying full-time on campus had online teaching of some degree or other, but that's not really reflected in the statistics. So, you know, I think there's a challenge there for the kind of agencies that are reporting on stuff as well. You know, I suppose it's, I speak quite selfishly in that. It would be quite good to have metrics on those kinds of things. But I think, I think it's interesting from that angle. And I think it's interesting to your point, Phil, around how how institutions might transform and how that might impact on some of this stuff. Cause you know, big thing in the UK certainly is trying to change models so that um, learning is more flexible and, and that kind of equates to lots of different things, but it certainly equates to this idea that you might do a course online and then you might do a course on campus. So it'd be interesting as universities may go, maybe go deeper in that direction, what that might mean for I guess OPMs, but also kind of a, a kind of range of different things. And Morgan, you uh, I've noticed in your newsletter, but also in different things, you're sprinkling little anecdotes from your visit to Berlin with OEB, which I joked was sort of your online expense report. To, um, <laughs> but but you were also telling me about like even the difference that you're hearing between the UK and the rest of Europe in terms of purely online? Yeah, certainly much more purely online in the UK than the rest of Europe. Most of the rest of Europe is just getting to blended learning or, or hybrid learning as they're talking about it. Um, apart from, so especially private business schools, they're much more ahead of the curve there. So you're seeing it not only in terms of online learning, but also in terms of just things like consumption of other ed tech things like 
LMSs and or VLEs and 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 those sorts of things. So it all comes back to the LMS. That's the way to go. It's where, I, it's where we started, Phil, and where we land yeah. up every time. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a big question: as we sort of wrap up for this week, I mean, in particular, what we're seeing is we all describe that there is growth in online. And we're out of the pandemic. So it's not its not the nature of during the pandemic, everybody had to rush online for emergency teaching. But it's also not the MOOC 2010s view of everything changes. Everybody's going online and traditional schools are all going to go away. So it's not that hype level. It's not the pandemic level. But I think we're describing structural, slow, but structural changes to online education. And you two in particular really highlighted, and it's not just in the sweet spots. It's getting into undergraduate programs. It's getting into community colleges. So I just want to check, are, are we all seeing structural online enrollment growth, certainly in the U.S. and in the U.K. and potentially elsewhere, that's no longer pandemic-driven, but it's structural and we will continue to see it. Am I overstating the case by summarizing it that way? The way I guess the way I described it, particularly thinking about the undergraduate market, is kind of modest growth. But, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned about the kind of pandemic I really feel like, and maybe this is just my cop out, but I really feel like the the next year's data set is going to be really interesting because I think then we've got a, a good set either side of the spike of the pandemic to properly analyze the trends. But I certainly think, you know, there is modest growth for online undergraduate in the UK. And, you know, there are there are reports out there about, a perception, particularly amongst the most disadvantaged, of, of of just the affordability of the on-campus experience. I know it's kind of talked about a lot in terms of the the cost of coming and studying on campus. So, you know, I guess it it the onus there maybe is on those providers who are doing online degrees that might mitigate some of that um, affordability challenge to kind of reach those people. Um, but yeah, I think you know there is certainly modest incremental steady year on year growth in the past you know four years or so but i think yeah i do think this time round when we get the uk data is going to be really fascinating well you're leaving me hanging a little bit there i mean i'm going on record about two two is going to have a financial event <laughs> over the next 12 months that will change the way it looks and you're you're holding out on the data phil Come this on. this is a cliffhanger for january's <laughs> Or February's oh, okay. episodes. <laughs> okay, I like that yeah. approach. All right, Morgan, what's your view on what's structural, what's pandemic related, or how should we view this? I think we, we've got a slow structural thing going. And I think hybrid is in some ways the thin end of that wedge driving some of that. So that's something I'm going to watch quite a lot. You know, it's like the, the, the gateway drug in terms of online learning. So I really want to... Uh, to watch some of that. And uh, um, even though uh, I am notoriously anti-HyFlex, sorry, Kevin, um, who's, who's our colleague who, who really loves HyFlex, I think of HyFlex, my typical line, uh, I, 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 uh, the, the food writer, MFK Fisher, 
was engaged by the government to write an austerity cookbook during World War II. And she had one recipe for a souffle that involved puffed wheat, but no eggs. And at the end of the recipe, she said, this will serve four people. However, only make it if you hate three of them and hope never to see them again. <laughs> and I think of Hyflex in the same sort of way. <laughs> like it got us through the pandemic, but only do it if you, okay. etc. So, but I, I think it is the thin end of the wedge. And I think there is slow, but but steady structural change. There are a couple of things that I'm watching, um, just even at one institution level, St. Cloud State here in the US, you know, which has got big enrollment problems. Work started work with the OPM, they got told to slow down. Their, their, their president just stepped down. So, you know, watching those kinds of things unfold. But over the next few months, I think it's going to be a critical thing. Well, we'll treat this somewhat as a cliffhanger, although I think we're all saying there's a very slow but structural nature of online enrollment and uh, and the nature of it is changing, particularly the mix and match nature and not just the pure separation that we've seen in past attempts between on campus and uh, online. Well, in any case, this has been a full week and a fascinating conversation. This is proof that maybe we shouldn't take a week off in between. There's too much news that gets built up, or maybe the news is going to slow down. I'm not sure. But it's been uh, great talking with you all, and we will talk to you next week.